Welcome to the Pious, the Pig, and the Podcast. I'm Colby Mitchell. And I'm Davis Pig. This is a podcast where I teach Davis a little something about Catholicism, and he tries to make fun of us for it. Davis, what's going on? Man, just coming off some a few days of leave and uh, really feeling refreshed. Like, I feel like I found my golf swing, uh, which, as you know, is um, that was a big accomplishment. Well, good. For, for not working for three days, and, and you know, that that's the high water mark of that three days. No work got done. I just kind of know my golf swing now. Good. Yeah. Good. Davis's goal right now is to make it uh, at least qualified to qualify for the U.S. Open. Yeah, yeah. It's a very lofty goal for anyone who knows anything about golf. Uh, And it's loftier still if you've ever seen me play golf. So, uh, yeah, no. Thanks for putting that out into the world. Now I actually have to. (laughs) Now you have to do something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, now I actually have to actually go out and execute. Well, on this episode, we actually have our first guest ever to the Pious, the Pig, and the Podcast. My friend Ryan is in town, and uh, he's in town from the seminary. So he is a Catholic seminarian with the hopes of becoming a uh, transitional deacon and then a priest, and he'll he'll tell you more about that, too. Uh, But Ryan, welcome, welcome as the first guest to our little podcast. Well, thank you very much. I had no idea I was the first guest, so this is super exciting. I just want to say... Oh, yeah. Thank you. I also want to say I have uh, taken this week. I have it off from school and seminary and I've not been working on my golf swing at all. So if you have anything to teach me, Davis, I'd be glad to know. Oh, oh, you don't want to take this from me. <laughs> Honestly, I've taken mine from YouTube and implemented them badly. So. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I don't know how uh, tall you are, Ryan, but um, like I'm six and a half feet tall. And so okay. like, um, pretty much any like standard golf uh honestly any advice when it comes to like sports or clothing or what have you it doesn't (laughs) translate well to people who are in the normal distribution of the bell curve for human size um so yeah you you don't want to take any of my tips because they're likely horrible i I feel like if you're taller you have a worse like it's there's more room for error in your swing yeah it's the same concept i mean it's like yeah i mean if i'm on it i crush i crush a golf ball Nice. Like, I don't know if it's a genetic thing where I'm like, I don't know if good at hitting a ball with a stick, but, uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, given the amount of like speed I can get cause I'm so long, like, yeah, no, I can crush a golf ball, but, uh, there is a lot in that motion right yeah. there in the middle uh, as I'm imitating a, uh, imitating a golf swing for the listeners. Um, yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong and, uh, a lot often does go wrong. <laughs> okay. I played Sunday for the first time. Uh, probably this year shot 89 was very excited nice. i got a very difficult course uh, but the main thing is it was replacing so on the handicap your last 25 scores count and i had a 90 on the back end so the score here was going to replace that 90 on my handicap i beat that so it's coming down a little bit so there you go what's, your, what's it sitting at now my handicap yeah 11.2 or something like that Okay, you're touching single digits. I, yeah. Of course, I don't have an official one, but I'm not what are you? with a home. What do you course. think you are? Oh, well, well, the apps that I have tell me I'm a 17. That's probably right. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it's all, the, the calculation's all, like, it's public information. Yeah, it's all like, kind of the same. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be probably there. right. If I get to single digits, I'm going to be 
thrilled, but I mean, it just, it's so hard. It's so hard. Well, since you put it out there, I mean, yeah, my goal is to at least be, to be in single digits, hopefully by the end of the year, like touching 10 by the end of the year. Um, That might be a little lofty, but at least by this time next year being in singles. I think you could, I think that's, I think it's easier to go from like 20 to 10 than it is from like 10 to seven. Yeah. Probably a diminishing returns thing. Yeah. 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 And Especially this is the golf podcast. Yeah, we're normally a soccer podcast. So, Ryan, I hope you studied what's been happening. I have. Uh, Davis is, and my team, they just fired their coach, finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did it with terrible timing. All right. They, uh, they waited till after the international break. So, I know you know all about that. So, we won't even get into to the end of yeah. Potter's reign at Chelsea. Well, I mean, Ryan, I mean, we'll, we're just going to start off here. You know, the first question for you, you know, happy to have you on the podcast. But what are your thoughts of uh, Frank Lampard as interim manager of Chelsea until the end of the season? I have to be honest with you. I haven't thought about it one bit because mm-hmm. I actually didn't know what happened. I don't keep up with soccer that much. Oh, that's, a good, that's a good answer because let's hope it doesn't happen, period. I was about to say, you, yeah. you're panicking me for a second. I thought that was a done deal. I heard it being No, it, I mean, it's being talked about pretty seriously from, from some tier one sources. But oh, that that's is, fine. Uh, we'll Pulisic see. will get some more play time. That's uh, Pulisic and Mount up top, and we'll just go with it. and Just vibes. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be uh, fine. Until we get uh, uh, Nagelman. Nagelman, yeah. Yeah, good deal. Old Julian, King Julian. Well, one of the reasons why I invited Ryan onto this uh, particular podcast is because I keep getting questions about seminary, what it is, what goes on. You're not the only one, Davis, who's curious. It seems like it's a chamber full of secrets that is the you know, seminary of what's going on there. Are they beating you with sticks until you achieve holiness? Are they? Is it a giant frat party? That's kind of what we're we're uh, trying to figure out. So well, I think, I think a lot of people have the thought of like, you know, um, or at least what, you know, the, uh, I guess Southern Baptist, um, this is what I kind of experienced growing up. Um, like folks saying like, oh, okay, you go to seminary, uh, because I, I'm not entirely sure the process What catch me here, Colby. It's, uh, what do pastors go through? I mean, generally they have like a theology degree. Like in, uh, like in a Protestant church? Yeah, like what's the... What's they have the a seminary too. Yeah, yeah, they have seminaries. Yeah. Yeah, so, but uh, I guess we're going to learn this, but uh, I think they're pretty different. They are very different, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think that's where most folks are hung up, where it's uh, like, no, it actually is a whole, it's a whole different thing. Like, it's definitely still a religious education, but that's about where my knowledge ends. So what, Ron, what year are you right now? So I am in my third year of theology, which means I've been in seminary for about five years now. Oh. So the way that seminary works for at least Catholics is uh, there's two programs that you have to go through. First, you have to go through a philosophy program, and then second, a theology program. So hmm. depending on if you went to college or not before seminary, your philosophy program is going to be longer. So if you did go to college, then uh, you do philosophy for about two years and you get another degree in philosophy. Uh, and then you do four years in theology. Now, if you didn't go to college, then you have to do a full four years of philosophy so you can get a full college degree. And then you do four full years of theology after that. If, wow. you, already have, if you already have the college, do you get another philosophy degree yes yeah, so in both cases you're going to get another degree in philosophy it's just since you have prerequisites from college you don't have to take as many classes like english science math that type of stuff 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so with that with that coursework for philosophy, I mean, is it, I guess, similar to assuming you didn't go to college and you go straight into seminary, um, is it kind of the same, I guess, coursework you would have as like if you got a degree in philosophy from like university? Uh, so it's going to be a little bit different. So I never had a philosophy class, not at a seminary. When I went to college, I got a mechanical engineering degree. So ah. it's, a, it's very different than philosophy, but um, kind of, <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> very different. A complete change of mindset. But uh, yeah, so philosophy at a seminary is going to be more based on like your classical sources. Um, so it's going to be more based on like Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, those type of people. Whereas philosophy programs by and large at colleges, they have that, but their focus is more on like moderns, romantic uh, type philosophers, like that kind oh, of stuff. Kant. Yeah. So like Kant, Descartes. So it's a very, it's kind of a different emphasis. Like I think you still learn all the philosophers, but like your main go-to guys for like a secular college are going to be the more recent philosophers where Catholic seminary goes back to like your classical and Catholic philosophers. Yeah, starting with the Stoics and going on on forward. Yes. So it's okay, going to be that, really that's helpful. The only, that's the only part of philosophy I know. I know the <laughs> Stoics. I know uh, the, the Greek person you just mentioned. Oh, Aristotle. Aristotle, <laughs> there we are. Uh, and, uh, and I know Nietzsche. Okay. I also didn't take a philosophy class in, in college. Well, the good thing now, too, though, is if, if Ryan decides, you know, God's not calling me to the priesthood, it's time to bow out, he can always go use that philosophy degree. And go get a law degree. You really want, you know, a mechanical engineer who's got some philosophy behind it. Yes, and a lot of theology, too. Yeah, they, they, the employers love that. Uh, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, real diverse resume on that one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I, was, you, I was gonna say, yeah, the law degree, just because, like, I want to say it's got to be 60, 70 percent of the folks in law school with me were were philosophy majors. Oh, were they? Okay. Really? Yeah, no yeah. It's well, I mean, absent like going into academia, I don't think there are a whole lot of like jobs specifically based on like uh, philosophy, philosophy, I guess, oriented. Uh, jobs are at least ones that aren't massively apparent. So a lot of people get out of college. And think, okay. You got academia and you got podcasting. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Uh, but yeah, no, I think a lot of folks go into college and like, oh God, what do I do? I can't find anything. And they go to law school. Which actually, I mean, it, it translates very well to law school because a lot of it is like the theory of the law and like how to kind of think around problems. And um, so I think it works really well, but that's the, an interesting uh, phenomenon. I noticed huh. the, the remaining like so if it's like we'll say 70 percent 20 the next 20 percent are history majors and then the remaining 10 are just a mix of whatever okay yeah aristotle the guy that we talked about earlier he says the highest uh type of thing that you can think about before god is going to be your political philosophy so it kind of makes sense that lawyers are studying or have philosophy majors yeah huh. hmm. So you got the you got your mechanical engineering degree. I did. You got yes. your philosophy degree, and you're in your you said third year at theology. Third year of theology. Okay. So what's that entail? So uh, once you hit uh, theology, you take a bunch of classes uh, in various disciplines. So uh, one of the main differences between like Protestant seminaries and Catholic seminaries are um, Catholics. You're being trained to be kind of like an administrator as well. So you have Law, law classes so we have to know canon law 
So in some of our years of theology, we have to take canon law classes, which is the law of the church. Um, then we also have to take scripture classes. So we have that in common with uh, other seminaries uh, that are Protestant. We have to take dogmatic theology classes. So this is what are the doctrines and dogmas of the church? What has been defined over the thousands of years of church teaching that we have to hold? Um, and why do we have to hold it? And why is it a mystery? So we take classes about that. We take classes on how to preach. So we have classes that specifically teach us how to uh, write homilies and then how to deliver homilies. Uh, so we have just uh, various classes. Sometimes we have uh, electives. So I took a class on Tolkien, which was pretty cool. Uh, so we have fun classes as well amidst all the other types of classes we, we have. So for three years, we study God in scripture, in sacraments, in dogma, in doctrines, in history. And, uh, and then hopefully after four years, we know enough about theology to be a good pastor. When so, you're... Uh, so well, sorry, Phil. Um, so we've talked about, so you have the, the front end of philosophy, then theology. Mm -hmm. How much do you have left? So I have uh, a year and a few weeks left of theology. Okay, and that, that caps it out? That's, yeah, uh, so the four years caps it out. Gotcha, and that's where you say, hey, I've completed seminary? Like, yes. So, so, so once you, yeah, once you pass all those classes, they say we've given you all the theology we can. Uh, now it's time to go out and work in the world and hopefully bring what you've learned here into reality and into the people's lives that you're going to encounter. Mm -hmm. And so I guess past that, like what's so you're done with seminary. Mm -hmm. What's the process afterwards? So when do you get ordained? Uh, how soon after that do you get sent, I assume, to wherever the church, I mean, I, I don't know how that process is. Do you get a list of like your top five locations? Uh, so, so it's a little different, but one of the main things that's the same, no matter what is <clears throat> when you're admitted to a seminary, you first have to be admitted to a diocese. So there are dioceses throughout the world and each diocese has its own bishop. And when you want to go to seminary, you have to go to that bishop and say, Hey, I want to be a seminarian. I think I'm going to make a good priest. And then that bishop, along with uh, the people he trusts, meet meet with you. You have to fill out an application. You have to go do a physical, do a psychological exam. Mm -hmm. And then if the bishop and the group that he consults with say, hey, I think this guy would be a good candidate, then you get to go to seminary. Yeah, so now, I think that's a distinction that also a lot of people don't know. I mean, it, and I'm glad you brought the, the front end up just because I'm familiar with it because I lived with Colby uh, uh -huh. back when he was considering a seminary. And... Uh, yeah, it, it's not like a straightforward process. It's not like, like college, for example, where it's like, oh, no. college will take you. If, Do you have money? If, <laughs> like, they'll take your money. Like, it, it, it felt to me, at least seeing it from the you know, kind of third party, like, that. I mean, it, it was, it's a pretty rigorous, like, it, what's called an application process, not even like an acceptance. Oh, I mean, yeah, application process. It, it, it's something. I mean, they, they, uh, they really dig deep. Oh yeah, they dig into, well, sorry, dig is the, not the right word, but uh, they like to uh, see how you are just physically with doctor's appointments and doctor's uh, evaluations, mentally with psychologicals, psychologically as well. Uh, intellectually, they wanna know how you are. They uh, contact like your previous jobs, if you've had any, to see if you're like a worthwhile candidate. Then you have to fill out an entire application. One part that I remember clearly is I had to write 15 pages about myself and my entire life history. So okay. that they have a general idea of like who you are. Uh, and so you fill all this out 
alongside an application and you give it to the bishop and the people he consults with and then they say <laughs> who may or may not read the 15 pages yeah, who may or may not read the 15 pages <laughs> yeah. depending on how well you write or how boring you are and mm. uh and then and then after they look at your application they don't accept you right away because then they call you in and they meet with you so you have to go the bishop's there and all these people i think i had about seven people in the meeting alongside oh, wow. the bishop That's it's a, a it's also a threatening meeting yeah it's they it's i know that it's not exactly this but it feels like each person there is looking for one thing one reason to kick you out and not let you join at least for me that's what it felt like yeah so yeah each person has questions for you uh not necessarily to kick you out but just to see if you're a good candidate right right yeah so, so, so ryan obviously didn't have that uh feeling colby so you're just you're just oh yeah right ryan, uh, ryan was confident i was yeah. really nervous because yeah it was it was much not worse but very different and more in depth than like a typical job interview uh so yeah you just walk in they know everything about you you barely know their names like you meet them when you're kind of going in and then they have all these questions for you and then father ask you. father jason recently he was cleaning out uh mine and davis's old parish and he found my application that had that 15 page essay in it uh -huh and it's still sitting in here i've not read it because i'm very fearful of what oh send it to me like <laughs> 19 year old that said about himself <laughs> oh if we ever have a patreon or like something where we have like an extra <laughs> tier like that's the first thing it's oh. gonna be it's gonna be just an episode of me reading that to you line <laughs> by line and, and, and roasting you like, the, the, the next episodes are director's cut commentary on it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I can so, help you read it on, on the podcast. So just let me know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so okay, so yeah, no, the application you have that. Um, so like, I guess the uh, the tail end. What what is uh, once you're out of seminary, what does that entail? So the tail end relates to the very first end because whatever diocese accepts mm -hmm. you, they pay for your school. So then, since okay, they pay that's... for your school, you're committed to that diocese. And so mm -hmm. when you finish uh, seminary and you graduate. Then you go back to that diocese and the bishop, once he ordains you, will tell you where in the diocese you're going to go. So gotcha. when you're ordained, you're tied to this physical location. So whatever diocese you're in and whatever bishop is in charge of that diocese, you're tied to that. Uh, and then you stay there and then you serve wherever the bishop uh, sends you. So I know in your diocese that there's a uh point like before you become a priest you become a transitional deacon is that for everywhere or is that something that our diocese specifically takes on and and what is a transitional deacon uh so one thing that canon law states is that everybody that is going to be ordained a priest has to be ordained a deacon first for at least mm. six months oh, okay. so a deacon is a little bit different than a priest uh so transitional versus a permanent deacon i don't know if anybody really knows the difference of that on, on i the, assume it's just a temporary deacon yeah so they're the exact same thing they're both deacons but one is just you're there for six months and you're going to be a priest uh permanent is you're going to be permanently a deacon uh but yeah so a deacon is ordained in the to be a servant to serve for the bishop in whatever capacity the bishop wishes, and then to serve at the parish in whatever capacity he can there. So he's ordained. Uh, and so when you graduate seminary, or depending on which part of the country you are, so right now the system is your last year before you graduate seminary, you're ordained a deacon. 
uh, you have about five months uh, to be a deacon at a parish. And then you go back and you have another year of classes. And then after the year of classes, you graduate and then you ordain the priest. So what the church is changing to now is they don't like that system as much. They think it's better to have a different one. So they're going to have the fourth year uh, of seminary completed. So your fourth year of theology. And instead of ordaining you before that, they're going to ordain you at the end of it. And then you'll be in a parish for six months to a year as a transitional deacon. And then after that, you'll be ordained a priest. Does that make sense? So there's going to be a change. So you don't have to go back to school as a deacon, but you rather yeah. going to just do ministry instead of schoolwork. That that seems better for me just for the fact of like for our diocese, there are priests who are ordained, but I know we're so desperate for priests in, in the Jackson diocese that they will take these guys, they're ordained priests. And they're like, all right, you're going to go learn from this guy. And then they're there for six months or whatever. And they're like, okay, you know everything now, go run this parish and you're going to be great. And it's in the middle of nowhere. So you don't have too much to worry about, but uh, you know, that forces uh, forces the diocese to give you some time to, to actually transition into the right uh, frame of mind, learn a little bit, but also not have the responsibility of being a priest. I feel like that's important yeah. too. Cause yeah, it's a, uh, something you have to grow into because especially uh, it's a little bit different than Protestant ministers. Uh, just in seminary formation, uh, I might go into that a little bit if that's okay. Yeah, go so ahead. while you're in seminary, there's like four main areas. So this is for Protestants? No, for Catholics. For Catholics. I guess yeah. I'll do Protestants first. So Protestants, at least with the Baptist seminarians that I've talked to, your main focus is going to be your studies. So it's going to be what Catholics call the intellectual life. Uh, so it's going to be kind of like going to college. You're taking classes. In fact, many seminaries, many seminaries that are Protestant are just colleges that people go to. Yeah. Whereas Catholic seminaries you live at. And then we have four main areas that we focus on uh, where the candidates for priesthood grow in. So the first is called human formation. Uh, so that's basically, are you a good person? Like, do you wash? Do you take showers? Can you use deodorant? Can you talk to people? There, there's some socially <laughs> awkward people that make their way into the seminary. You got to yes. get that out of them before. I was about to say, I was like, yeah, no, so th that seems like the easy A class, but the fact that they had to make a curriculum. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like like those uh, the warning stickers on hammers, like don't hit yourself in the head. Yeah. Somebody hit themselves in the head. Like. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's people that are failing that class. There are, but these are just like the baseline <laughs> things. And then you grow into how are you managing your emotions? How do you handle stress? How do you exercise? How do you eat? And, and then it's that when they put you in a dark room and start hitting you with strobe lights and, and you know, how do so, you handle stress? That's actually at a different time. So that's uh, how you're like, oh my God. That doesn't happen at all. <laughs> good, good response. Good response. <laughs> Yeah, that's right before you become a priest. They really stress test you. They're like, you sure you want to do this? Like, yeah. He's broken. Get him out of here. But, uh, but yeah, so there's no strobe lights and hitting, but uh, but there is, you learn how to have proper boundaries in ministry, proper boundaries with yourself, proper boundaries with others. And that's kind of like the human dimension. So you can make a long-term gift of yourself as a human person. So you take care of your body, take care of your mind, take care of your psyche. And then from that, you can have a good spiritual life and minister to people well. That, that sounds like that was at the top of uh, every class right there, that, that segment you just have, like take care of yourself and then yeah, the, 
they, yeah, no, that seems like that's a, that's a point that's hammered pretty heavily in a seminary. Yes, it's uh, yeah. pretty heavy. Uh, so that's like the main foundational level. And we actually don't have classes about this. We have formation conferences every now and again, but our main formators are each other because we'll go to each other and say, Hey dude, like you shouldn't eat that second piece of pie or stuff like that. Or like you were, you're kind of a jerk to that person. And so we kind of form each other on how to be humans. Cause we live together all the time. So 150 guys and, uh, for eight years, the priests that are, we're with live together and like we eat together, we go to mass together, we pray together, we go to class together, like everything is together. And so we really like, you can rub off on each other the wrong way, or you can do it the right way where you actually strengthen one another and growing into like being a better human. So David, as much as I loved our freshman year at Mississippi State, imagine doing that for eight years straight. Yeah. Yeah, you'd you'd really love me, but we would have gotten so good at FIFA. We'd have been so good. At FIFA. <laughs> yeah, so good. you get your own room. We do get our own. Okay, room. that's so, good. So yeah, yeah, y'all lead you, you lead me into the next question. It was like I literally just wrote down like how was how was like seminary life as a whole because so, you say you say 150 guys. So is that like total like between years one and years eight or whatever? Or is it like how many in your class? Like how does that work? So total, there's a hundred, about 150 every year. And then it goes all the way from beginning philosophy until the end of theology. Uh, class wise, it depends. They kind of vary, but usually a class has about 20 people in it. Like, so you're grad, quote unquote, like your graduating class is mm -hmm. about 20 per 20 per class. Yeah. And this is, year, multiple, yeah. this is multiple, this is multiple dice, dice, Diocese. Yes. Yes. Dang it. Yeah, I was going to hit him with that later. Like, all right, pop quiz. How do you say the plural of, plural of diocese? Uh, dioceses. I'm not sure. You'll have to check Yeah, that now out. you're doubting yourself on that. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, so, it's, it's no, how a many... running joke we've had on this podcast. Is we, can't, <laughs> we can't hit it. And it, I think when I last go, I think it is dioceses. But, uh, so how many diocese is, uh, is going to this one seminary? Uh, I think about... 12 or 13. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So there's only like 20 priests coming out of every class divided by 13. Yes. That's kind of sad. I hate that. <laughs> yeah, wow. No, that, yeah. Are there other, because we're all stationed in the South, is there other regions where it's like we're getting 20 guys per diocese or is, is that just not in America at all? Uh, so it's, uh, from my knowledge, it's not in America oh. that much. I mean, some of the bigger dioceses can have like seven, seven to eight people ordained a year. Hmm. Uh, but usually your smaller ones, if you have one ordained a year, then that's pretty good. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so it just depends. And then it varies again. Sometimes you can have like three people ordained and then the next year you can have zero. Uh, so it is just all dependent on how God's working at that point mm -hmm. and who he's calling and who's answering. That's, I think that's the problem. There's not as many answering as uh, I wish there were. And that that's, uh, leads to my next question. Um, I'm sure they've told you what the rate is. You don't have to be very specific, but I'm curious. Like, because we, we keep saying, you know, oh, there's a shortage of priests. That, well, obviously that means there's a shortage of folks going into the seminary or making it out of seminary. Like, is there a certain rate? Like, I mean, is it, are we at replacement rate? Or just uh -huh. like barely under it? uh for like priests you know dying retiring so again it, it depends on the diocese so since you're ordained into a diocese um you have various replacement rates so some uh 
have very good rates where they're uh, ordaining more people than are retiring or passing away. And then others are not nearly at their placement rate. Do you know my diocese? How much is my diocese? Uh, so I think your diocese, uh, I'm not, I don't know percentage-wise. but Not replacing? You think we're replacing it all? So it's replacing, but not as fast. As it should. As yeah, it, it should. might be a one to one or just because there's just so many parishes I go in. I'm like, you're close to either you're going to end your ministry or God's going to end your ministry at some point. Uh, you know, <laughs> at this point, I'm like, oh, we gotta, we gotta keep getting these folks in. Yeah, I yeah think... I'm sure heavily regional. Like, I feel like I feel like Rome is pretty good on its applicants. Mm-hmm. Like, and then yeah, like Mississippi on the other hand. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, Ireland. Yeah, I didn't think of. Yeah, is Ireland going good? They've been seeming to go worse no, and worse I for the church. They don't have enough vocations. Yeah. Oh. And I think they're collapsing. That's so sad. No. Oh, wow. Yeah. No. That, oh. Huh. No. So with the uh, with the I guess the uh, seminary talk. So like Colby mentioned it there for a moment. Uh. So so what is like so y'all all live together. Mm-hmm. Honestly, when you say, like, you know, we've kind of highlighted, I guess, the difference between, like, Protestant seminary and Catholic. But, um, honestly, I'm kind of picturing, like, a monastery. Like, uh-huh. like how you see, like, in Robin Hood, uh, or what ha- pick your movie, um, where it's like, you guys have just one big, long table that you meet at, essentially Hogwarts. That's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking. I'm kind of thinking Hogwarts. Uh, so, so, I mean, you got your own room, you said. I mean, how, how kind of is it? Is it kind of like a dorm situation? Like, yeah. So how big you, is this building? Uh, the buildings. Well, we have like uh, three buildings on our campus, uh, mm-hmm. but each room is probably about fifteen by like twenty, maybe. Oh wow! Uh, and then we share a bathroom. We each have our own sink. Uh, so it's kind of like a kind of like a dorm, pretty much. Yeah. It's just a long hallway with other long hallways on different floors. For the eating situation, it's not long tables. It's just circular tables and. Uh, Funnily, one of our human formation things is we do table tapping. So a guy comes around and he taps the table, and only when he taps your table can you go get your food buffet style. Mm, okay. So it teaches patience, and you have to learn how to talk to the people you're stuck sitting with or you enjoy sitting with, however you frame that. <laughs> Before you sit down, everyone has to put their phone in the basket. Like- uh, actually, it's uh, frowned upon to have your phone out on the first floor of the seminary where all the classrooms and chapel and huh. eating is. So normally you kind of get in trouble if you have it out. So I've, I've been to Ryan's seminary too. And it, uh, as, as humble as he might make it sound of, uh, this wonderful pious place, the monastery that you're having in your mind right now, Davis, Mm -hmm. there's also giant weight room, love that giant library, uh, pool, basketball courts, uh, yeah. and, and the nice little kicker is a movie theater and a bar that is uh, there for the seminarians. Love so that. that. Is that open? In... Is that open at all times? Yes. Like, like I'm saying, like, is it an open bar? Do you need to pay? Oh, you have to pay. Sorry, I thought you meant can no, you get no, a beer? No, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you have to pay. I was about to say, whoo, that's. Yeah, it's an easy way to weed out those. You're like, you're going to be too much of an alcoholic. That's why we, it, this was actually a trap, sir. <laughs> yeah. But well, it, fair point. it's pretty cool. Yeah, it all goes to the human formation again. You need the gym to learn how to exercise. 
Uh, it's okay to drink alcohol, but you should always do it in moderation. So you're also learning yourself uh, and how to best have that balance. If I guess that's the word. Yeah. I mean, at no point, I mean, it, I mean, especially if you're together for that length of time, I'm sure some folks would think uh, that it's like, well, it's opulent. You should only be there. But I mean, that, that just kind of seems normal, especially when you have like that many guys together for that length of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like seminary is like the only time you can have that many dudes together um, without just like just straight up fighting mm-hmm. all the time. Well, like, because I, I feel like once you, I mean, see any fraternity, like, do fights break out? Ah, uh, so no physical fights, but yeah, people do good. get like angry at each other. But uh, one of the funny things, at least my opinion, going into seminary, I thought everyone when I got there would be super holy, pray all the time, do everything that they should be doing, like uh, study all the time, know their stuff, and that's not the case. We're all growing, uh, we're all trying to become better and and have a better relationship with God. And so there's a lot of strange things. I mean, if you took 150 random people and put them all uh, in one building to live together, like you're, you're going to see some strange Top stuff, player. but you're going to see some great stuff too. We're the youngest and in, in your, the, the theology is going to be 22. Yeah. So the youngest <laughs> is about 22. If they went straight to, to the philosophy. Mm. So, yeah. So, yeah, just take any random 150 people and put them in a building. Like, that's what we have in common as well. I mean, we're all men, but that's like what we have in common, that and God. And we think we're co- he's calling us to be a priest. And so everyone has their quirks and you just learn how to live with them, correct the weird things, get corrected yourself. And so it's a very interesting experience. I guess you have that heavy application process on the front end and, you know, you have the years of schooling and then it's kind of having that same dedication on the back end with a lot of growth kind of in the middle oh absolutely because i mean let's be quite honest i was i was a person at 18 Uh i was a whole different person at 21 and i'm a whole different person at 25 and i think i have a theory that i think at 25 like you're kind of the person you're going to be uh but yeah no i mean that's a lot of transition especially in that age range like where yeah a lot of changes happen but i guess it's that growth in the middle Mm -hmm. Did you, was your uh, philosophy at uh, Covington? No. No? Okay. So the the one that's for my diocese, it is like the the philosophy part of it, and I'm sure this was on purpose too, but it is on the campus of a monastery, the Benedictines. Mm -hmm. So the St. Benedict's is there, Uh, but it's in like the woods. Like, there's no easy way to get there. So they they get the guys. Covington, Louisiana? Yeah. You Did you go yeah, to... I've, I've been there. Yeah. The one yeah. with the door, the doors that look cannon-proof. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's all. Like, I mean, the it's door's beautiful. like a foot thick. But I think it probably helps that when you got the 18 to 22-year-old guys, you're not in the middle of, uh, like, New Orleans or Boston or something like that. You're in yeah. middle of nowhere. You got a bunch of monks that are looking after you to make sure that you don't, you know, bring home women to the seminary or something wild like that. Yeah. Uh, God. And you just I, burn things. That definitely seems like they kind of learned again, back to the, uh, the, the sticker on the hammer thing. It's like, yeah. guys, we can't, we can't put this in the middle of Vegas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. They tried it once it yeah. right, closed immediately. Yeah. Weirdly the seminary in Miami didn't do what great. Like, <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's one in Miami that's, but it, I bet it's not philosophy. I bet it's that theology yeah. afterwards. Mm, yeah. 
So I guess so. Um, once you're, uh, I guess, formally ordained, um, they formally ordained, you're not a temporary deacon or what the other word you use? Transitional. Transitional, thank you. Um, so you're a full-on priest, you're in a diocese. Um, something I'm curious about, and I'm sure others are as well, and you're also welcome to, you know, dodge this question, but like, how was the living situation specifically with like priests, well, I say specifically, but like kind of generally, like, do you guys get a, a you know, a bi-weekly paycheck? Like, is it just kind of you submit like, hey, I'm, I need, you know, this like internet service, and you send them a bill like to the diocese? How does that work? Uh, so you, you do get a paycheck, but um, generally, and I think I've never met a priest for a diocese that hasn't had this. You're also provided with a house that's mm -hmm. either close to your parish or near your parish in some way. Yeah, I mean, and ours then, growing up was, I mean, it was what, across the parking lot? Yeah, it was mm -hmm. like on, technically on campus, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so your housing is usually provided for you. Uh, sometimes your food can be provided for you, depending on if the parish pays for it or not. Or how so, cook you are. Yeah, and then the diocese pays your insurance and all these things. So you do get a paycheck, but you don't really have to spend it on that much. So it's not as big a paycheck as like other jobs would have. It's relatively smaller. But again, every need is pretty much taken care of. And this is your more discretion, not discretionary, but like your retirement fund stuff, maybe your car payments, stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it's, I mean, from what I know, but it kind of sounds like the military where like, yeah, you you get paid, I mean, coming out of college, I mean, I think like the 30 grand enlisted huh? guys is like 30 grand, but, uh, you know, and in today's day and age, you know, that goes quick, but, <laughs> but again, like their food's paid for their housing, yeah. like they don't have any of those expenses. Um, and so, yeah, no, that's, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Cause, and cause the other thing too, I kind of want to stress there is that you're, you're paying for your own retirement too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you want to retire, You've yeah. got to save up yourself and, you know, you might could tell which priests didn't save as much by the ones who were still pastors of whatever this, that, or that parish. Which is kind but, of wild to me. That That's something that I guess didn't really think of. I, I guess I kind of assumed a, like priests would have like a pension or something. Like you essentially retire with like, okay, you get social security and you get, uh, maybe, uh, and you get, you, you know, essentially your salary. Yeah, no, none of us will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, for whatever reason that I kind of assumed it's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, you just kind of continue on. It's just, yeah, I can no longer serve the church. Mm -hmm. So, so when a priest retires and they, they are paying for their own retirement, but typically I see them still like saying that I assume they would still want to mm -hmm. go, go say mass and maybe hear some confessions here or there. Is it just merely, okay, I'm going to live where I want to live and I'm not going to run a parish. Is that what retirement looks like? Uh, so it depends on the priest. Again, some can uh, go off and travel like the U.S. I know one that did that, like goes biking. Uh, so they just leave the diocese and go travel. You can do that. Uh, others uh, say, hey, I want to live in this rectory with whatever priest is now the pastor. I'll help out, take masses, uh, and just kind of live out my retirement here. And if the pastor's okay with that, then that's great. Uh, some priests retire and go to like a retirement community, but again, say masses. So the set, there's, I guess the distinction here, there's sacramental ministry and there's like administrative parish work. So when you retire, you retire from the administrative work and you don't have to stop the sacramental ministry because that's part of like what being a priest is mm -hmm. and that 
should get bring. To get, give, yeah. to give up the bullshit and get to keep the fun stuff. Yeah, kind of. So yeah, yeah. it's not like at sixty five I can be like, all right, I'm retiring, Kaylee. See you later. I'm. Uh, it's been fun being your husband, but I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's uh same with priest. That's your vocation. You're not leaving the priesthood, I guess, on that. Yeah, because on that point, a priest is more about there's like in a very special identity with being a priest uh, and you can never like get rid of that. So different roles that the priest has is like doing paperwork and administrative stuff and then like liturgy mass and that kind of stuff, but you can't get rid of that identity. So you're always going to be like that priest forever. Uh, and so you can continue to exercise that in the more like hearing confessions, saying mass, being a spiritual father uh, and stuff like that. How hard is that for, I guess you you wouldn't know firsthand, but from priests you've seen, how hard is that to kind of balance and hold on to that identity without getting bogged down by Susan from the parish council or or the you know people that are trying to you're I guess fending off as the administrator of the parish. So uh, that's pretty. <laughs> some priests do it very well, and some priests don't do it very well at all. But um, so a sacrament, just to put that out there. Uh, is like a visible reality of an invisible grace that is like made present. So a priest is going to be the. I can see you reading that off the flashcard, by the way. Oh yeah, sorry. You <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> can see it in his book that he's been looking at for five years. He just can't have his eyes <laughs> to move through it. Yeah, one of my professors has beat it into me, so I can never forget it. But uh -huh. so that that priest, his identity is now going to be someone that continued Jesus's ministry in the present moment because jesus is not now walking among us but the priest is so he becomes that visible sign which is why priests wear black of an invisible invisible reality which is that this man is now working in the place of christ especially in the liturgy and the sacraments but in everything he does he's supposed to be showing you know jesus's love and the father's love to all those he encounters uh, so he and he does that through the church and brings actual grace into reality so that's a sacrament. And so a priest needs to remember that because ultimately it's the being and the sacrament that is going to bring grace and bring change into the world rather than just the work he does. So the work he does then should support who he is as a person, which is that continuation of Jesus Christ's ministry in the world. Uh, so like being a father, you have to provide a house for your kids. You have to take care of your wife. You have to support them. You have to do whatever it takes to take care of that house so that they can grow up to be well-adjusted kids that have their needs provided for. So in the same way, a priest, if he's exercising this ministry of Jesus Christ, he needs to be a good administrator so that the parish family, the spiritual children, can grow up to be well-adjusted, mature, spiritual adults that now have the life of Jesus Christ in them, and they can go out into the world and uh, show that life and that love to all those that may not be Catholic or have never seen or thought about God at work in their lives. And so the administration is going to serve that spiritual fatherhood. The sacraments are going to serve that spiritual fatherhood in a way. And those in themselves, like saying mass, allows the faithful to grow in that maturity uh, in a real way. And so all of that needs to be balanced together. And so when priests do that well, it means that they prioritize their prayer life. They prioritize their intimacy with the Lord so that they can give to others what they first have received from the Lord. And then if they have that intimate prayer life with Jesus and they pray and 
priests promise to pray, uh, then they will yeah, have. I feel to like that'd be a core tenet of the, yeah. uh, of the taking the cloth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And... Like I, I hope my priest is praying more than I am, because if he if he isn't, uh, we have a problem. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? When you become, you get ordained. You don't take vows. You make promises, right? Yes. So what? What are those promises that you would make? So you promise to be celibate, which means uh, you're not just giving up marriage, but you can look at it in the positive way: is that you are gaining the entire church, and that you are free to love everyone in it uh, as a son or daughter of God and as a son or daughter of the church. So you. Are well, opening not your... in a biblical sense, though. Yeah. So not in a, yeah. Sorry, not in an exclusive way like marriage. But <laughs> love, in... yes, in the biblical <laughs> sense, but not in the biblical sense. You're yeah. thinking. Yeah. So not <laughs> not the marital love, but a different kind of love, yeah. the love of God for all of His children. And so the priest participates in that rather than that exclusive love of marriage. So that's one promise. The second is going to be obedience. So uh, the priest is going to be respectful to the bishop and then also uh, obey him in whatever he asks that is proper according to the faith and morality. Uh, and so I, I know some priests that have some problems with that one. Yes. So it's both respect <laughs> and obey. And then priests also promise to pray. Uh, and then there's another thing, simplicity of life, where the priest kind of uh, tries to remain uh he tries to have a proper relationship with things. So ultimately, the three main ones, um, celibacy, obedience, and simplicity, all allow the priest to relate well to uh, simplicity, relate well to things, uh, celibacy to relate well to other people, and then obedience to relate well to oneself uh, because you're giving up your will when you're obeying a superior. So those three things help a priest to be able to have a proper relationship to everything. And then prayer allows him to act uh, in Christ and through all those other things to be, to bring grace and love into people's life. So with that simplicity thing, and uh, catch me if I'm uh, drilling down too far into details here, specifically Colby, uh, but uh, just cause I'm curious, like, but like, you know, the simplicity of life, like I think most folks understand like that, uh, like it's not, you know, it's obviously not a life of opulence um, going into the priesthood, or at least it's not supposed to be. Um, see, like all of the 1600s uh, for the opposite of that. Uh, but, but, uh, but like with with that simplicity of life, like how hard is that line? Um, because I mean, like I can see, I can see either argument to be like, yeah, I mean, technically you don't need internet, like. I mean, none of us do. We do it for for convenience and you know and and uh, and essentially convenience and uh, entertainment. But like, but like, can a priest can a priest go and just like get a PlayStation? Like yeah. That? So the line's going to be a little bit different for everyone. Mm -hmm. So what religious brothers and sisters do is they promise poverty, which is where they can't own anything. Gotcha. Okay. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about simplicity. So this is where. You can own things, but they don't, I guess, own you might be the way to say it. So you mm -hmm. can use things. Everything has its proper time to be used. Within moderation. Proper, within moderation and its proper place to be used. And so simplicity is you're able to have objects to own things, but you can use them at the right time and then let them go when that time's over. 
or like if you see a poor person and you really love your jacket but you don't need it uh you can give them that but with freedom you don't become bitter but you're like okay this jacket was great i really like it but i really don't need this i have three more at home and this homeless guy is like freezing and i can give it to him so it's a proper relationship to objects and so that's going to look different for everyone so if a playstation helps a priest have leisure uh then that'd be great but if he becomes possessive of it or that's all he does then that's probably not going to be a good thing yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah it just depends on the person so I, yeah. I was talking to one of our all of our mutual friends about uh the dominicans and they he was just talking about their rule is for for going into the poverty part of that somebody who came from a lot of wealth their what looks like poverty to them is going to be different from the person who was just dirt poor. You know, the person who's dirt poor, you don't want to let them feel like they're living in luxury because they have a bed or something like that. Uh, whereas the same thing, you don't want to make the rich guy feel like he's just completely uh, desolate, I guess, at a certain point. So it's it's the same standard, but it's going to look different for others. Is that mm -hmm. kind of what that simplicity is for yeah, I see as well. It is. So, yeah, whatever the priest can handle and have a proper relationship with, that's going to be the line. And it's it's prudence. Mm -hmm. So prudence is discretion. no set rule. Yeah, it's discretion. There's no set rule for everyone. Who's, so, who's the check on that, though, when it comes to like holding the priest accountable for, OK, you've just bought your third boat. Is the bishop going to step in on that? Is it going to be your brother priest? I mean, how does that work? Is it there feels like word gets around? Like, yeah. What, what's what's the process for that if that something like that happens? Uh, so there's various things. So if it's stealing is a problem because the priest wants whatever, it's going to be uh, a matter of canon law, and it will be taken to uh, a court within the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, so there will be judges and everything. So if, well, we've talked extensively about canon law. Okay. On this podcast. Uh, yeah, no, for, for the listeners, uh, you know, Ryan has not listened to this podcast. So, uh, so he hasn't called, uh, he hasn't caught our deep dives into like, what is canon law? Is it's the most amateur canon lawyer thing oh. there is. We got to get a canon lawyer. I'm going really, to get oh. hook me up with a canon lawyer and we're going to, we're going to go deep. Okay. I'll try oh yeah. Get ready for like our a four hour podcast. No. Like, uh, he just knows a lot of stuff. Okay. We'll find, we'll find one. We'll, yeah. we'll track one down. So if oh, it's yeah. not illegal then, uh, the bishop probably will not know how much his priests are being simple or not, just simply because he doesn't live with them. Yeah. Other priests may or may not, depending on how often they get together. Uh, but if they do and they recognize it, then it would be the responsibility of the priest to call each other out. But ultimately, it may have to be with the lay faithful because they're going to be the ones mm. that see how their priest lives the most. Uh, and so you don't want to do it in a mean way, but I think a lot of the time, faithful need to help keep their priests in check because ultimately the priest is responsible to the church and the church is the people in a sense mm -hmm. uh so yeah it just depends uh because the only people that know the priest is not being simple can call them out for it and most likely that will be the lay faithful yeah it's like oh wow uh, father jim keeps showing up with a brand new set of golf clubs <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and and davis and i had a priest who's he's not a priest anymore but i mean every six weeks he had a new vehicle i mean he sold the other one but you're like oh that that's something 
yeah. obviously not a priest anymore, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that, but that is something in. that I don't think most lay faithful feel comfortable doing or even recognize that that's oh, yeah. a responsibility to uh, keep check on their pastor. I it's not necessarily their responsibility, but they can always, uh, I guess, write to the bishop or something and say, hey, this is out of control or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, so that was my thought as well. Like, um, was to ask the, I mean, this question, and Colby, you kind of touched on it, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, coming up, I don't know. It just seems like, uh, seems like, oh, by the way, I, I can hear a bit of an echo, um, on y'all's end with the mic, but, um, but coming up, it, just, it seems like, I mean, kind of the, appreciate how he, he's in amongst the people, but like, that's a man of God. Um, I can see people being hesitant to one tell on him. Uh, and two, I like, I don't even know how I'd go about that. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. You say, you know, right to the diocese, but like, like it, it, just, it just feels so odd to me to, uh, say like, Oh, okay. Like, Hey, this priest is being, it seems like he's being a little opulent or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say. Like, I mean, that process, I mean, is it directly, I mean, kind of just go to his boss. Do you talk? is an appropriate process of like talking to that priest first like it just seems kind of odd to uh to i don't know i don't know how to tell on a priest yeah like you don't want to be the tattletale that just goes straight to writing the bishop would the i i you know wouldn't the first step be go talk to the priest yourself i would think i mean i have a long list if it was you if if we get to father ryan and he's in the parish and you're kind of a grump you know, you of all people, and it says yeah. just grumpy and being mean to people and being jerks. What the, what would you want to happen at that point? Like, I, I have a long someone. list of, of things St. Peter is going to read off as my transgressions. <laughs> I really don't want to add snitching on a priest to that <laughs> list. <laughs> well, I would hope someone would tell me because not it's not necessarily snitching, but if you care for the priest, then you'd hope that he changes his ways to be. Uh, better to be what a priest should be now i'm not saying you need to go and do this if he's eating a steak every week but like for the bigger the bigger things like clericalism in a wider sense where he's just kind of selfish and he doesn't take care of the needs of the parishioners then i think you should i would hope that someone would come say hey you're not meeting our needs like we need a spiritual father like can you be one like i like how you've done this this and this but I think we also need this. So like do it in a positive way. Like, Hey, not like, Hey, you're being a jerk and you're terrible at yeah. everything. Like, Oh, you're awful. But more like you've been a spiritual father. You're doing these, these, and the, this stuff. Uh, we as lay faithful have rights and canon law says that, and you're kind of missing some of them. Like you're doing this, but we kind of need this too. And just kind of pull that fatherhood out of him in a way. So you don't have to be like explicit, but like just like kids pull fatherhood out of parents in ways that they wouldn't have expected, I think spiritual fatherhood can be pulled out of priests in various ways as well. Mm-hmm. And so not even correcting it right away, but having that relationship with the priest is great. And then you can actually have honest conversations or at least pull something out of him that may not be there. Yeah, father's not going to take too kindly to it if he's never seen you before. And yeah, he suddenly gets a call from the bishop being like, I've heard from, you know, Davis. Uh, and you're like, who? Yeah. <laughs> he, didn't even, he didn't even come to church. <laughs> I'll say this, too. If, if it is like a huge problem or just for anything in particular, 
your bishop is a lot more accessible than you might think he that is. Too, yeah, yeah uh, which, it, which is so wild to me. I mean, Colby, you specifically say this all the time, but like, yeah, yeah, but you're pretty tied into the church. Like, it just seems so, it, you know, it, they seem that if, if a priest seems like on a hill to me, the bishop is way beyond that. Yeah. In that, well, like, I would have to, I'd have to seriously look for his mail and address. Like, <laughs> well, if I mean, yeah, he's not gonna because I don't think the bishop typically, at least in the diocese that I'm around, you don't necessarily know where he lives. Like, it's not public knowledge because he, yeah, is, which is probably good. Yeah, is an important figure. Um, but like, probably more of a knock against me that I am more tied into the chancery office and the church of that. I was also. Uh, my particular bishop, I was his first seminarian and also his first one to quit on seminary. So he was 0 for 1 to start. So he's probably mm -hmm. not happy about that. But uh, but as far as anybody else, if you need a meeting with the bishop and you just call the chancery office, say, hey, here's what I've got going on. He's not going to accept you just to probably chit chat. He might, depending on how, how extroverted your bishop is. But uh, but if you have like a specific concern, like I had somebody who was running a pregnancy center and uh, wanted to talk to the bishop and just tell him what was going on so he could be aware that that was happening, you know, he's happy to take those meetings. Or if it's a, hey, we've got a, you know, a fraud abuse or something like that in our, our parish, we need to go talk to that with the bishop, you know, he'll take your, he'll take your meeting. Mm -hmm. They're not Brian, doing too and Ryan, you actually, uh, Colby said that with the, the fraud abuse thing. Uh, and we, we talked a little bit earlier about, like, the, um, the I guess, the administrative side of priesthood. Mm-hmm. How much of your schooling involves accounting? Uh, so I've had zero classes on that so far. But in our uh, final year, uh, we have a class on finance. Okay. So that, it seems like any sort of, like, fraud waste, you know, it, like, when I think of administrative duties of a priest like to say you know administering a parish and what have you i straight up just think of you're right i mean priest is overseeing the books like mm -hmm. and how is most waste or fraud detected via the books yeah is the priest the person with the books so uh one of the things about administration uh is you can delegate so what we are trying to do at the seminary is you have to have a good enough view of the entire picture of what it takes to run a parish, to be a spiritual father, and to take care of all these souls that are now under your care. So we're trying to get the big picture and the theology and the thought process and philosophy and the human ability and the spiritual life to be able to do all this. And so we're not going to be experts in everything. Some people come with business degrees. Some think some have never had a job in their life and have no idea of what the value of money is but the goal is to give them an overview so that they can look at the books and say oh something's not right here but also delegate to have a bookkeeper that has actually had schooling uh in all this and is like competent and able to keep the books and then we would just oversee that and double check and make sure that they're doing it in a right way um so we're not going to be experts in everything we can't it's impossible yeah. But to be able to have the common sense, the foresight, leadership skills, to delegate to competent people, to hold those people accountable, and then to double check and make sure that their job is, in fact, what it is what they're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so fraud, again, is never good. But 
we want to be able to make sure it's not happening by overseeing, but not necessarily being in all the weeds of everything. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, essentially, I mean, it's a business manager, but I was, I was just curious whether that was a, a big part of, I guess, the education on that on that administrative sense, because, I mean, that's, that's it, the word administrative covers a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, what what yeah. you don't want your pre, like, like we said earlier, you want your pre spending a lot of time praying. Uh, so, like, yeah. I, I run a business, and the time spent on the books, I mean, I have two full-time employees who their job is to make sure everything matches and lines up and stuff like that. If you're pre, like, the parish that I'm at, it's not, I mean, it's not very big relative to a lot of other parishes, but it's bringing in $26,000 a week. Uh, you know, at least is, that's what's being posted in the bulletin. So that's a lot of money to be accounting for if you have one employee, uh, but you also have finance council and stuff like that, that you are delegating that to. So it's, you know, if, if the priest was spending all of his time looking at where every one of those dollars came from and went to and all that, there wouldn't be a whole lot of time for the prayer part either. So, yeah. But, and, and for, for reference, just for everyone out there that heard $2,600, well, you said 26,000, I think 26,000 a week was yeah, what the bulletin said. That that's a little over under about 6 million a year. Like it, it, I think it's a little under, but yeah. like that, that not a whole lot or wait, did I do the it, right math? Right. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not massive, but I mean, it's still, uh, still significant, but compared oh, yeah. to literally any other business, like it's not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to other businesses, but as far as compared to, yeah, you know, it, it being two guys where a family might be, you know, four people, five people, what have you, and really only two, the mom and dad taking care of it. Parishes, most parishes I would go to, they have the pastor. They have one part-time employee to make I sure mean, that all staff. that money is accounted for. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's about it. So it is, uh, uh, priests have to rely heavily on the people that go to their parish. And most people, if you go to the parish, you want to be involved in stuff like that because that's your home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and so taking a, a bit of a different tack, Ryan, I got a question for you on, a, it's one I wrote down and I forgot to bring it up in a moment. But, um, so like I have had like a, just a high level view of like, uh, I guess the, the legal side of like confidentiality, but I'm curious what they um, say about or what you've been taught on uh, confession and confidentiality. Like, what are, how do they teach those lines? Like, I know in the more or less in the legal sense, and again, it's been about four years since I took that class, but, but like, with confidentiality and confession, how do they teach that in seminary? Uh, so you should never break it. <laughs> so you never want to connect a sin and a sinner in a public way. Uh, yeah, so in any way. So you never want to connect a specific person with a specific sin in any way because then that degrades the sacrament. And so you can't do that legally if you're requested, because again, the sacrament is gonna trump uh, the legality of whatever nation or state that you're in, because we respect the sacraments more than just a secular political law. Uh, so yeah, we, we are told that you can't break the seal of confession. Is there any saint that you can think of off the top of your head that was either martyred or jailed for not breaking confession? Uh, not off the top of my oh. head. What is our seminaries even doing nowadays? I don't can't know. Answer my <laughs> questions. Okay. But I, I know it's happened. I mean, the, even in the United States, that's happened in, in 
not permanently because our law protects that, but, you know, spent 60 days in jail waiting on, you know, the verdict for what this, that, or the other for not, uh, for breaking the, for not breaking the seal of confession for what have you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think it, I think it varies by jurisdiction. I know there's in all 50 states, there's like a, there is statutory protection, um, for, Mm -hmm. uh, it's under the rules of evidence. Essentially, you can't call it, um, can't call it as evidence. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, that, I mean, it's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, that you know, what whether or not you know the secular legal system is going to say whether like oh there might be an exception like you know for 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 certain things. I mean, it's good to hear that it's uh like, I guess taught them that no never do it. Well, it's also automatic excommunication too, isn't that right? Oh really. Yeah, and you have to write to Rome and tell them what you did, and oh. work through that. You have to send another. You have to send a thirty-page essay this time. No, I'm not sure how long it is because I never <laughs> had to do it. But it's the whole thing, which we covered on this this pod before too. Of if you have to get Rome involved, oh, that that's a that's think of super administration, uh, super red tape yeah no it's like it's uh i think what we said it's like uh yeah if if you're uh, worried about like bureaucratic red tape imagine having to write literally the oldest bureaucracy on the planet yeah yeah (laughs) all right i just googled it all 50 states and the district of columbia uh have enacted and the federal government have enacted statutory privileges Providing that at least some communications between clergymen and parishioners are privileged. Yeah, meaning that just some of them. Um, and I'm not sure the the finer details. I think it varies slightly by jurisdiction, so I, I'm not entirely. Which sure. Which is why they let some men sit in jail for at least a little while before. Yeah, maybe, but um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, no, I'm not entirely sure on all that. But I mean, that that's kind of the point I was getting at was the uh, main bit. But um, yeah, that's uh the the thing with uh the oldest bureaucracy is the um is essentially is what we got into when we talk canon law um because i'm fascinated by canon law uh-huh. in that it's two thousand years of law uh and uh you know it's, it's something that uh i really am uh, really curious about and if you know a canon lawyer we, we got to get him really. we got to get our our second guest will be a canon lawyer the uh i guess final question i had off the top of my head, unless you have uh, anything else, Colby. Uh, anything? Yeah, you know. Go ahead. Okay. So, to our listeners at home, can't see you. Um, you were wearing a Roman collar. Yes. Meaning that that's, for those who don't know, it's the you know, priest wearing a black shirt and a little white band around the collar. It's called the Roman collar. When do you gain that right to do that? Uh, so, right now, there's a thing called candidacy. So when you're going through the seminary process, you start and you're kind of just, oh, I'm going through this process, like whatever. Uh, So you do that. And then in theology, usually your first year, um, you now take a more public step. So there's a rite called candidacy where you go, your bishop says a prayer, and it's like a more public pronouncement of the church in favor of you uh, moving towards ordination. Uh, And it's you now publicly in a very different way than before represent the church so when you get candidacy since you're now a more public uh seminarian than you were before you can wear the collar at least in some dioceses so that's why i'm wearing it because i'm a seminarian and i've gotten this candidacy um and so now i can wear it now in other dioceses 
Uh, sometimes it's just when you're ordained. So if you ordain a deacon, you can start wearing it then. Uh, and then priests, of course, can wear it whenever. Mm -hmm. And what are the general limits on, I guess, the color? Is it is it something you have to wear all the time? I know the answer to that, but but like, uh, what's when you're the, a priest, you mean? Yeah. So when you're a priest, like, I mean, is it encouraged, required in certain circumstances? Like, how does that work? Uh, you should never wear it in the shower. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. um, no, uh, it's it's up to the priest. So um, it's it kind of symbolizes uh, a death to self, which we were talking about earlier with obedience, uh, celibacy, and simplicity. Um, so generally, it's uh, probably good if you wear it in any time of ministry circumstances or any time that you're engaged in parish life or with uh, your parishioners. Uh, when you relax, I mean, you don't have to wear it. And so I think it all comes down to, again, this balance. So whenever you're wearing it, you are going to be looked different at differently than if you're not wearing it because you now stand for the church like in a public way versus like if you're wearing a t-shirt and shorts like you're not going to have that same uh symbolism so um it again comes to balance so if you're like burnt out and tired like maybe you don't need to wear it when you go to the store because you could yell at that next person that comes up to you so it's a, again it's a matter of like prudence uh, but generally you should always be wearing it when you well in my opinion you should wear it when you're doing ministry when you're at the parish and doing anything like parish related gotcha now and i ask because uh i had a priest tell me one time and of course you know i've seen priests without i mean not wearing the roman collar outside of you know their uh, official duties uh it is a little odd um especially when you're addressing you know a grown man um in <laughs> common garb as father um but I did speak to a priest one time that it's like, you know, when he was early in his priesthood, he, uh, you know, he wore it everywhere. Um, and then he missed like eight flights um, going wherever. And it, he no longer, he specifically did not wear it in an airport because everyone and their mother is pulling him aside be like, Father, can you take my confession real quick before I hop on this plane? Like, and <laughs> the fear of death upon yeah, these people. Yeah. Like, every, but he's like, it'd be every 20 feet you'd walk and someone would pull you aside and be like, Father, will you, will you hear my confession before, you know, I, I, I leave in five minutes. Can you hear it real quick? And, and like, yes, yeah, sure. Like, you know, but he missed so many flights and was uh, finally just never, never worn in an airport. Again. <laughs> oh, no. Um, okay, so Ryan, the one thing that we always do to end out our podcast is Davis typically gives uh, his saint of the day, and we learn about that specific saint, or not saint, we learned a lot about Pope Pius V, okay. or no, Sixth, Pope Sixtus V, uh, who did some good stuff, also did some skeevy Horrible stuff, stuff. Uh, so, but, but anyway, we try to tap into the history of our church and, and uh, the people to look upon it, and you were telling me about one of your favorite saints right now, uh, French-Canadian, oh, St. Isaac Yogues, St. Isaac Yogues, can you tell us who he was, what his deal was, because his story seemed fascinating to me. Uh, well, St. Isaac Yogues is, uh, was a French guy, he was born in France, he wanted to become a Jesuit, so he eventually did become a Jesuit, and uh, then he wanted to go, I think, to somewhere in Asia, but he was chosen to go to the New World, uh, into French Canada. Once he got to French Canada, he went and traveled among the Huron peoples, uh, and as he was there, he was he was able to uh, record their entire language and put it into writing. So he became like the guy that was able to translate uh, for them and like the main authority on the Huron language. 
Uh, he didn't have much success when he was uh, baptizing and trying to bring Indians into the faith. In fact, a plague hit when he was trying to bring the Hurons into the faith. And what he thought he was doing was he thought he was baptizing everyone that was dying and saving their soul for eternal life. What the Indians thought he was doing was they thought every time this random guy dressed in black robes pours water on someone's head, they die immediately. So he's doing <laughs> witchcraft. So there's very two different uh, reactions to the same thing. But eventually the Hurons uh, kind of make a peace treaty with uh, the French Canadians. And then they're attacked by the Mohawks in which Isaac Yogues and a bunch of Hurons are then taken captive. And for about a year, uh, he lives as a prisoner as he watches the other Frenchmen uh, die and Catholic Hurons die. Uh, at various points, um, the, the, Mohique, uh, sorry, the Mohawks uh, bite off his fingers, tear off his fingernails, stab him, like burn him with stuff. Uh, he eventually escapes, goes back to France. At this point, he's missing the digits that he can use his fingers, that he can use to say mass. So he has to get special permission from the Pope to continue to say mass. Huh. Uh, the French queen was like so impressed by him. She's like, I need you to come to uh, my castle and I'll have an audience with you. So he does. And the entire time he's back in France, he's like, my people are not being converted and they're suffering. Get me back to America. Well, he eventually goes back uh, to the same people that had him captive for a year. And it sounds like he's going to make this treaty between these these people and the French and the Hurons. Uh, but at the last minute, uh, he is killed by the Mohawks and he becomes a martyr. And uh, it's a very inspiring story because he not only didn't fear going back, but he actually had to beg for it uh, from his superiors and from the queen. Uh, and he eventually gets to go back to the very people that caused him so much suffering and pain. Uh, and it's, yeah, just a very inspiring story because he was a priest and he wanted to be a priest even for people that like hated him. Yeah. That's uh, a, that's a good one. Like that, that was a good follow-up. Yeah. No, uh, Kobe just messaged me here saying, uh, do I have a saint? And I didn't. And you delivered. Wow. Well, I was kind of hoping you didn't. Cause whenever he's telling me about St. Isaac Yogues, the thing that also point like stood out to me is whenever he was in for, like went back to France, he was like, my life is too cushy and too nice here. This is not what God called me to do get me back to where I was had my fingers chopped off where I was stabbed where I was tied he was tied up and just left there so the children could throw rocks at him or whatever yes, you know fun children <laughs> games yeah yeah no uh, I'm sitting here as you're speaking I'm sitting there like reading up on it real quick I'm looking off the Wikipedia right now is that like yeah no like you said yeah the Mo the Mohawk regarded missionaries as evil practitioners of foreign magic. And since they transmitted European diseases uh, with high fatality rates, um, they saw it as a uh, as a result of the Catholic uh, presence there and the paraphernalia left behind by the Jesuits. Uh, but also, but also looks like pours water death. Yeah, <laughs> magic and, uh, water. So yeah, he was killed on 18, uh, October eighteenth, sixteen forty six, with a with a tomahawk. So mm -hmm. that's rough. Um, also, fun fact to tell on the end here, um, so the uh, Aboriginal allies of the French captured his killer in uh, the following year and condemned him to death. Um, while awaiting his execution, uh, Jacques, well, yeah, Jogues, uh, killer, 
he was baptized as Christian and took the name Father Isaac Yogues. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And his death, you know, the the his death represented a secondary martyring of Isaac Yogues. Wow. That's something. Wow. That what a kid that that was a killer end to that one. Yeah. Choice. I like that one too because there's just there's not because of the relative uh, youngness of America in itself. There's just not that many saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, so, we talked about the the one last go round was uh, I think the most recent American saint, but he was killed in like the eighty or, or the most uh, American yeah. martyr. He wasn't. I don't think he's Catholic, uh, but um, I forgot who it was that we were talking about. Not Stanley Rother, is it? Yep. yep. There you go. Yeah, they are uh, teaching me something at that seminary. Good try. job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, good deal. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, that The seminary questions have been my most pressing that have been getting. I don't know why so many. I hope it's that they are discerning. Uh, so if you're discerning the priesthood, uh, contact me. I'll get you in touch with Ryan, and then he'll get you in touch with somebody a lot smarter than him that yes, can help you. because there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me. For sure. Uh, but either way, we're happy to have you. Uh, Davis, anything else before we head out? No, I think that's it, Ryan. Really do appreciate it. And uh, oh. if you guys have any additional questions, feel free to out, reach out to us at uh, piouspig at gmail.com or, you know, text us. <laughs> you guys know us. So. Oh, certainly. Well, All right. Well, we enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to y'all soon on the next episode of the Pious the Pig and the Podcast.